For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus set a movement into motion, a movement that's unshakable, unstoppable, and unwavering. He promised that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This movement is the kingdom that God is building, using broken people like you and me. He chose to use us, the liars, the cheaters, the outsiders. But through his love, grace, and mercy, we have become beloved sons and daughters of God. Jesus is building his church. We are his church. It's you, it's me, it's them. This, this is the heartbeat of our church. For he pursues us. Now we are to pursue those far from God with the hope and love of Jesus Christ. So let us pursue those near us, those that he has set before us. Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So run, chase those you know, chase those you love, for he has called us to build his kingdom. That's good. It's good to see you. If, uh, if you're new to our church, this might be a little awkward for just a moment, so bear with me. I've been gone for the last four weeks, so let me say I've missed you, and uh, I'm so glad to be back today. I'm looking forward to this morning and next week uh, sharing a little bit of what God did in my life over uh, the past four weeks while I was away, and so uh, I, I've just been praying over what he'd have me share, and I feel like I got a good grasp of it, and so that's coming. But in two weeks, listen, be here for this. Uh, I'm so pumped about this series. Uh, man, I, I'm so pumped about our mission as a church and what I believe God's called us to. And so for five weeks, we're going to talk about uh, what that looks like in our community and in our world to pursue people like God has pursued us. And we're going to make it really practical and really helpful for you. And so be here on your way. I'll grab some invite cards, take them, use them, invite some people to join you. And, uh, and again, the pursuit, I, I believe God's going to use it five weeks in, uh, in huge ways. Well, look, glad again to be back. Four weeks of sabbatical time. I have to be honest, uh, going into it, I thought I was going to hate it. I'm a guy who really likes to work. And so I was preparing myself for four weeks of boredom and misery. But I have to say that it really proved otherwise. Uh, God has used the past month in my life in profound ways to speak to me about areas that, that I need to be more intentional in. And he's also spoken to me, me about areas of my life in which I need to guard at all costs, not just as a pastor, but as a follower of Jesus Christ. And one of the areas that I, I feel like God has spoken to me most on over the past four weeks is the area of prayer. Uh, he's spoken to me personally about prayer and the priority that, that uh, prayer needs to become in my life. 
but he's also spoken to me clearly on the priority that prayer needs to become in the life of this church. Uh, God gave me four specific things while I was away for Cross Point City Church. Nothing earth-shattering, uh, but, but all hugely important. And at the top of the list, I wrote all four of these things in my journal. At the top of the list was, we have to become a praying church. Now, if you've been here while I've been away, uh, you know we've been talking about prayer all summer. And so you might be asking the question, James, does this mean we're about to talk about prayer again? Yes, we're going to talk about prayer again. But, but this morning, look, we're not going to focus so much on the practice of prayer. Instead, we're going to focus in on the relationship between faith and prayer. And here's what God's burdened my heart with over the last four weeks uh, concerning faith and prayer. Look, you and I, we can know how to pray. We can have a theological understanding of what prayer is, how to practice it. We can say prayers in our personal lives, uh, in our gatherings, in our small groups. But look at me, I'm telling you, if, if our prayers are not defined by faith, in other words, if we aren't going to God, and calling on Him to move in our lives and in the lives of, of other people in our church, in our community, and in our world in ways that only He can, believing that He is capable of doing far greater things than we can ask or imagine, I'm convinced that we not only insult God in the process of praying, but I also believe that we're going to miss out on all that God wants to do in and through our lives. And I don't know about you, but I don't want that. I don't want that for me. I don't want to miss out on what God wants to do in me, through me. I don't want our church to miss out on, on what God wants to do in and through us. One of my prayers for Cross Point City is this, that, that, that things would happen here that could only be explained by God. Like, I don't want anybody ever to look at Cross Point City and go, look what James did. Look what those people did. I don't want us to get credit for what happens here. I want people to look at what's happening at Cross Point City Church and to say, only God, only God could pull off what's happening in and through those people. And I am deeply convicted today that if that's going to happen, faith-filled prayer has to become the priority of our lives, not only personally, but corporately together. Now, as I was trying to get my head around how to preach on this today, I was begging God, give me something. Like, I don't, I don't know where I'm supposed to go. And, and as I was praying and asking God to give me a passage uh, to preach on, uh, he brought my mind to a story found in Acts chapter 12, a story that I love. And so if you have a Bible or a device with you, I would invite you to grab those things. Go to Acts 12 with me. Acts chapter 12. Uh, if you're new to Bible reading, Acts, it's going to be a little bit toward, uh, a little bit further toward the back of your Bible. If you can kind of uh, find the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts is the very next book. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12. And, and as you're finding your way there, I'll kind of set it up and and then we'll read some verses together, all right? In this chapter, we find that a guy named Herod was ruling over Israel at this time. And if the name Herod sounds familiar to any of you, it's for good reason. Uh, this Herod was a grandson of Herod the Great, who was ruling over Israel at the time Jesus was born. And Herod the Great, by the way, if you didn't know this, he was crazy, out of his mind. This guy is often remembered for murdering his own family members, including his own wife. Uh, he was the same guy that ordered all the baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas to be put to death because he heard that Jesus had been born and was being proclaimed king of the Jews. Now, like his granddad, uh, Acts 12 Herod, he was crazy as well, had some screws loosed. 
Uh, This guy, he had gotten arrested in Rome, did some shady stuff, but because he had friends in high places, uh, he had a pretty quick release, and they actually reinstated him to power. And this guy got to thinking, you know, it's probably a good thing that, that these Jewish people that I'm ruling over like me. And so what he decided to do was this. He decided to start killing the very people the Jewish people hated, uh, people called Christians. And in verse 2, the Bible tells us that James, one of the very disciples of Jesus, he was the first to go. And, and Herod went, you know, since that pleased the people so much, why don't I keep this thing going? I'll hunt Peter down next. Peter's my next choice. Why not kill the guy who is leading the church uh, at this time? And so he hunts Peter down and, and he arrests him. Now, the Bible tells us that, that Peter's arrest happened during a very important Jewish celebration. It was called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It actually happened as part of the Passover. It lasted for seven days. And because this feast was considered holy, no prisoners were allowed to be executed until it was over. And so Herod's plan was simple. Uh, I'll let Peter sit in jail. I'll put four guards around him uh, to keep watch over him at all times. And then after the feast is over, I'll bring him out and I'll kill him. Now, if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 5 with me. This verse is key to the message today. Look. So Peter, he was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So before we move on from this, just burn this picture in your mind, if you will, all right? Here's Peter. I don't know what he looks like. You can just make it up in your mind, all right? Just picture Peter. He's in this dark, dingy cell. He's shackled. He's probably dirty. He's probably had very little or, or even uh, nothing to eat or drink since he's been there. He's chained up to guards around the clock. Freedom has been stripped away. He's waiting to die. And his people, the church, he's leading. By the way, I hope you pray for me if I ever end up in jail uh, for believing in Jesus. But his church, they hear what's going on. Our our guy, our pastor, our leader, he's been arrested. And they're going to kill him. And so they start meeting and earnestly praying for him. That word earnest in this passage means that they were literally on their knees praying deep, heartfelt prayers, asking God to do something on Peter's behalf. And how does God respond? Well, when you keep reading the story, you find in verses 6 through 11 that God responds in a supernatural and miraculous way. On the very night that Herod is going to bring Peter out and put him to death, God sends an angel to free him. Peter, he's sleeping. I don't know how he was sleeping the night before he was going to die, but, but he's sleeping, chained up to two guards. Two other guards are watching the door, and this angel shows up, strikes Peter in the side, the Bible says. I don't know if he was a heavy sleeper, but I just love the fact that this angel, he's a little violent, thought the best way to wake the guy up was to punch him in the ribs. It, it worked. He wakes up. The, Peter, uh, the angel says to Peter, get up, bro, find your clothes. We've got to get out of here. And so he does so. He's trying to figure out if he's dreaming or if all this is really happening. He follows this angel outside the prison into the city, down some street, and this angel disappears. And the Bible says that Peter, he kind of snaps back into his right mind. He realizes that that wasn't just the most insane sleepwalking episode of my life. That just really happened. And he knows God just rescued me now i want us to start reading together in verse 12 if you have your bibles go there if you don't then follow along with me the bible says when peter realized this that he was free that he had been rescued he went to the house of mary the mother of john whose other name was mark where many were gathered together and were praying 
And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Now look, Rhoda, she's who we're focusing in on today. Uh, she's an obscure character in this story. Her, her name's only mentioned one time in the scriptures. Three verses are devoted to her. But Rhoda gives us a beautiful picture of the relationship between prayer and faith. So she goes to answer the door, and recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but she ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And then they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, Rhoda, it's just his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. So let's get our heads around what we just read, all right? Think about this with me. It's the night of Peter's jailbreak. The church, they're expecting him to be put to death. And so they're together in Mary's house and they're praying. And think back to verse 5. What were they praying for? They're praying for Peter, right? And in the middle of prayer group, bang, 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 knock, knock, knock. Somebody's at the door. And so this little servant girl, Rhoda, who would have answered the door anytime anyone showed up to visit, she goes and and without opening the door, because let's be honest, who opens the door in the middle of the night for a stranger? That's weird. She probably asks the question, uh, who is it? And from the other side of the door, she hears Peter's voice, Rhoda, it's, it's me. I'm saved. God freed me. He rescued me. And I love this in her joy, in her excitement. She doesn't even open the gate. She just runs back inside to where everyone is, is praying. Can you imagine being Peter in that moment? You just broke out of prison. You are a fugitive on the run. The authorities are coming after you, and you just got left. I mean, that's awful. He's probably hoping that no one sees him. And Rhoda is inside telling the prayer group, hey, prayer meeting is over. No need to pray anymore. God has answered us. Peter, he's standing outside. He's free. He's safe. He has been rescued. And look, if we just hadn't read the passage, you might expect, like me, that when this group of people heard this, they were overjoyed, like our girl Rhoda. Are you kidding me? That's awesome. Open the door. Get him inside. But that's not what happened, right? Instead, this prayer group looks at Rhoda, and they say to her, you're crazy. Have you lost your mind? Rhoda, it's just his angel. Look, you need to quit being uh, so assertive and, and quit insisting that he's out there. Just come back to prayer group. Peter's going to die, and we need to ask God to do something for him, right? But Rhoda, man, she just keeps insisting, keeps insisting, keeps insisting. I have to say that I love her courage in this moment. Look, from a social perspective, Rhoda, she was the lowest person on the totem pole. She was a servant in Mary's household, which meant that the majority of her life meant keeping her mouth shut and doing what other people told her to do. But in this moment, she decides, I'm not going to be a servant of these people. Instead, I'm going to act as a servant of God, and I'm going to keep insisting and believing that he's actually moved in power and done what we all have been asking him to do. I'm crazy. You're crazy. If you don't believe me, get up and just go, look, he's standing outside the gate. Look, I don't know about you. I'll just be honest, I'll tell you, I need more courage. I need courage like she had courage. This is one of the things that God impressed upon me over the last month as I've been away. It's so easy for me to come in here on Sundays and to stand on this stage and to courageously proclaim the word of God to you. I need more courage out there. 
I need more courage when I'm around people who don't agree with the majority of what I have to say and teach. I need more courage around those people who think I have lost my mind, I've gone crazy because I actually believe in a God who created me and loved me enough to send his son Jesus to save me from sin, death, and hell. I need courage to keep insisting upon and believing in that God when it comes to other people who don't know him like I know him. If you go, well, James, how can I pray for you? That's how you can pray for me. Pray for my courage. I need more. Rhoda, she's courageously insisting that Peter is safe. And finally, I guess the prayer group gets tired of all the banging on the door because they go to see what all the banging's about, and, and there's Peter. And the Bible says they were amazed. One of the things that struck me as I read this story this past week is this, uh, the description of the response between Rhoda and this prayer group. The Bible says Rhoda, when she knew Peter was outside, she was joyful. The church, the rest of the church, they were amazed. And I feel like Here's what God showed me. Uh, she was joyful because she was expecting God to move. Expecting God to answer prayers. And when he did, all it did was fuel her. These other people, they were amazed. Why? They didn't think God was going to move like that. Even though they were praying and asking him to move in power and to do what only he could do. There was something in the back of their minds telling them, he ain't going to do it. Look, can we just have an honest moment? I want to ask you this question. If you could have been in the room that night, who do you think you would have been? You think you'd have been like our girl Rhoda? Or do you think you would have sided with the rest of the church? Would you have been like the servant girl running back from the door, filled with joy, believing that God had just answered your prayers? Or would you have been, in the, been uh, sitting in the seat of the skeptic, looking at the servant girl, telling her she was crazy for actually expecting God to do what they were asking him to do? I'll be honest and tell you, I would love to say confidently this morning that I would have been like Rhoda if I was there. But again, if I'm being honest, I'll tell you, there have been too many times in my prayer life when I've been the skeptic. And so I'm not sure. I'll give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, when I was still the student pastor at Westridge Church down in Dallas, uh, I took my students on a mission trip to Brazil. And it was a brand new country for us. So I thought, you know, instead of dragging 70 to 80 uh, students out of the country, uh, and, and to have a trip full of surprises, why don't I go down before I take them and just scout it out and figure out what we're going to be doing? So I took this trip, and uh, we were in Manaus right on the Amazon River, and part of the trip included the missionary kind of taking us to ministry sites. And so uh, one of the days I was there, he said, look, we've got to hop on this boat, we've got to get on the Amazon River, because it's the only way to get to where we're going, and we're going to drive down about 10, 15 minutes, and I'm going to show you an area where we're going to work. And so we get in the car, drive down to the river's edge, and we're standing there, and standing there, and standing there, and there's no boat, and we're standing there, and I start asking, hey, where's the boat? And, uh, and the missionary says, oh, well, we thought we would just come and stand by the river and, and wait for a boat. So I said, hold on, wait, I thought we, like, scheduled a boat or something. Oh, no, 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 we didn't schedule a boat. Uh, we thought we'd just come down and, and hope that a boat would show up. Now, I've always been taught that hope is not a strategy, right? But in that moment, hope was our strategy. I'll never forget it. I'm kind of frustrated, like, this is dumb, what are we doing? And the missionary looks at us and he says, why don't we pray? Why don't we just pray that God would send a boat? Now, I'm the guest, I'm a pastor, I'm trying to act spiritual. So I'm like, oh yeah, great idea. Let's pray inside. I'm going, that's ridiculous, bro. You have a phone in your pocket. Call somebody and get a boat here. But we join hands on the edge of the Amazon River. 
And this missionary prays a simple prayer, God, um, we need you. God, we need you to send a boat. We need to get down the river. And so, God, we're just asking you, would you, would you send a boat? Would you provide for us? We say amen, and I kid you not, five minutes later, guess what shows up? A boat. This little Brazilian guy going, oh, you need to go somewhere? Yeah, hop in. I'd love to take you. See, it's moments like that in my life that make me wonder if I was in this story there on that night. Two things about myself, I wonder. One, would I have been the guy praying for one thing while expecting another? You ever been there? You ever been praying and asking God to do something in your life or, or in the life of another person, but you're expecting him to do something different? Like you're praying and begging God to move, but in the back of your mind, you're going, he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. The book of James in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 say that people who pray like that in doubt rather than in faith are double-minded people and they shouldn't expect God to answer their prayers. You see, oftentimes, and not every time, this story that we're looking at today is an exception, but oftentimes when you and I doubt God in prayer, God refuses to move. The second thing I wonder about myself is this. Uh, if I'd have been there, would I have been the guy saying to the rest of the group, Hey, enough of all this praying. Peter, he's going to die tonight. We need to do something ourselves. You guys, distract the guards. I'll bring in the tasers, put the other guards down, grab the keys, unlock the chains. We're going to run for it. Some of you, you'd have been on my team if you were there, right? If that would have been my response. Have you ever wondered why we do this? Like, why do we doubt God in prayer at times? And why at times do we take our lives and our circumstances out of his hands, push prayer aside, and act like we can do a better job than he can? You ever wonder why we do it? I'll tell you why I believe it happens. You ready? I think the answer is simple. Because in too many situations and in too many circumstances, we operate and live on a practical level with a wrong view of God. I don't know if you realize this, but your view of God ultimately determines everything about you. If you're the person in the room who has a big view of God, you believe and live as if he is actually the God we read about in the pages of this book. Here's what I bet happens in your life. You pray big prayers. You expect big things from God. And I bet God's using your life in big ways for his kingdom and his glory. But on the other hand, if you're the person in the room who has a small view of God, you're not so sure if, if this is really who he is. You, you question his power, his love, his, his goodness, his ability. You probably pray small, safe prayers. You probably attempt small things for, for the sake of God and his kingdom. And I have to expect that, that you don't really expect much from him. Can I tell you the other danger of having a small view of God? When you have a small view of God, you tend to think more highly of yourself than you ought few weeks ago, I was in uh, San Diego, California for a preaching workshop. Uh, one of my mentors, he pastors a church there, and he hosted about 25 of us young pastors from the southeast. And at one point during the workshop, we're there to talk about preaching, but he drops this on us. He looks at the room, and he says, none of us are as important as we think we are. Appreciate the encouragement, Larry, right? Like, man, whew. But I'll tell you, in that moment, that, that statement caught me in a couple of specific ways. One, when I heard it, I went, you know what? He's right. I'm not as important as I think I am. I was just gone for a month. This went on just fine without me. This past month, 
reminded me, excuse me, reminded me that Cross Point City Church is not James's church. This is Jesus's church. God doesn't need me here. He wants me here. And that's a humbling thing. There are plenty of guys out there who could lead this church better than I could, but God called me to do it. And I'm honored. I'm amazed that he would want me, even though he doesn't need me. The second thing that the statement uh, did for me is this. It freed me up. When I heard him say that you're not as important as you think you are, I went, thank God I don't need to be. Look at me. Jesus is important. His kingdom is important. His church is important. Knowing him and making him known is important. And to pull that off, you and I don't need to be important. We need to be humble. And humility is rooted in you and I having a right view of God and a right view of ourselves. I just wonder again, where do you fall? Look, I'll say this before we move on. Um, Take it one step further because I, I have experienced this personally. If you're the person in the room whose view of God is that of an angry dictator or a slave master, he's just this being that you're supposed to obey to appease him and to keep him happy and off your back, can I just tell you, you'll never pray with confidence. You'll never pray prayers of faith. Instead, anytime you pray, you'll approach God as that scared dog with its tail between its legs. But on the other hand, if you believe what this book teaches, that God is a good, gracious father that he loves his sons and daughters not because of what we've done but because of what jesus has done for us if you believe that he's with you and for you that he'll never leave you never forsake you that his love for you is not dependent on your performance guess what happens your prayer life changes you do what the book of hebrews says you approach the throne of god with confidence and with boldness and you ask him to do things in your life and through your life that only he can do the last thing i'll say before we move on is this i just want you to know it is uh entirely possible for you to have a theological and intellectual understanding of the character of god but to still live each day on a practical level with a wrong view of who he is right like think about this you can know all the bible teaches to be true about him and you can actually claim to believe it but you can also at the same time push prayer aside you can doubt god in prayer and all that proves is that on a practical level, your view of God hasn't shifted your heart and changed your life. I have to assume that this church in Acts 12, that was their problem. On some level, they were operating with a wrong view of God. I don't know if they doubted his goodness, his love, his power, but they doubted him. And we see their doubt reflected in the fact that they were busy praying for God to move in power while refusing to believe that he would actually do so. But something was different for our girl, Rhoda. And just so you know, my prayer is that Cross Point City Church would be full of Rhodas. People who pray expectantly, believing God for greater things. She was the only person in the room who went, you know what? I I believe God can and I believe God will. And when she went to the door, she went, well, he he did. He did. And in her joy, she went back to tell everyone else. My prayer is that our church would be full of those people, people who say, you know, we just can't get on our knees. We're going to pray, and we're going to expect, and we're going to believe, and even if God doesn't, we're still going to trust in him. That's my prayer. You see, what this tells me about Rhoda is this, that she was a woman who had a right view of God. People who have a right view of God believe that God can do anything simply because he's God. 
And not only that, they also believe that God in His grace and in His goodness is willing at all times to act somehow, some way on their behalf as loved sons and daughters. And when God does move and act, guess what they don't do? They don't doubt Him. They don't go, ah, no, I don't think that was Him. No, instead they quickly give Him honor and glory for what it is He's done in them, through them, for them. Now maybe you're sitting here going, okay, James, great story, uh, so what? What's this have to do with my life today? Well, I want to give you two things, all right? How in the world can you and I ensure that our prayer lives are characterized by faith and not doubt? Two things if you're taking notes. The first is this. You have to know God deeply. You have to know God deeply. A moment ago, I told you that it's your view of God that ultimately determines everything about you. It's your view of God that determines whether or not you pray prayers of doubt or prayers of faith. And I'm just going to tell you, if you want to have a right view of God, you have to know God deeply. Not just know about God, but know Him personally and intimately. And how do you do that? Well, the answer is simple. You spend time getting to know Him. I mean, think about it like this. Uh, In human relationships, if you want to know somebody, what do you do? Spend time with them, right? And you get to know them in two primary ways. You talk to them and you listen to them. And my advice to you this morning is this. uh, Listen more than you talk, right? Single people out there, that's some good dating advice, right? Listen more than you talk. And what happens over time is this. You talk and you listen. You get to know that other person. Uh, You start to understand whether or not they're a person of character and integrity. Whether or not you can trust them. You feel safe with them. You start to learn about the things that they love, the things that they hate, what fuels them, drives them, drains them, right? Because the same with God. If you want to know God deeply, you have to spend time with Him. Look, talking and listening. What what does that mean? Well, first, it means that you need to spend time in this book. This is the primary way that God speaks to us today. God the Holy Spirit inspired human authors to pin the words of this book on these pages so that you and I could hear God speaking to us. I love what John Piper says. He says, if you want to hear God speaking audibly to you, read your Bible out loud. It's great advice. This is why it's so important. Don't miss it. Look, this is why it's so important for you to show up on Sundays and to sit under the teaching of this book. Now, we don't just play church here. We want to teach you this book so that it'll change your life so that you can know God more and more. Be here. This is why it's so important for you to get in a group at Cross Point so that you can, can take the Word of God and sit down with other believers in Christ and, and discuss what it means and how to obey it and live it out. It also means, again, you've got to talk to God in prayer. Don't let prayer be reactive in your life. Make it something you do proactively. Does this make sense? Don't wait on crisis to hit, life to fall apart, a uh, job to be lost before you finally go to God and pray. Talk to God every day about who you are, who He is, what He's done for you, what's going on in your life. And here's what happens over time. It's beautiful. The more you talk and the more you listen, the more you start to understand who God is. Your view of Him becomes what it should be. You start to learn that He's trustworthy, that He's powerful, that He's in control of all things that you can count on Him, that He's for you, that He's with you, that He'll remain faithful to you even when you're not faithful to Him. And if you want proof, just look at Jesus. He's all the proof that we need. When you know who God is, your prayer life changes. And you start to pray faith-filled prayers 
instead of doubting ones. The second thing is this. If you want your prayer life to be marked by faith instead of doubt, pray as plan A. Pray as plan A. Uh, One of the things that struck me when I was reading this passage this week just over and over again is this. This church really had no other option but to pray. Like I know I've joked earlier about tasers and and a jailbreak. That wasn't going to happen. They knew that if, if Peter was going to be saved from prison, saved from death, even though they doubted God, many of them, they knew that God was going to have to move and do something. And that left them on their knees. Prayer was plan A for them. Can I ask you a question? Is prayer plan A for you when it comes to life and circumstances and what you're facing? Or is God and prayer somewhat of a last resort? And I'll describe the difference so that you can really kind of answer that question for yourself. All right, think about it like this. Uh, And we'll just keep it easy. Somebody gets sick, including you. How do you respond? When a need arises in your life or in the life of someone you know and love, how do you respond? When you're having trouble in your marriage, when your kids are rebelling, they're uh, disobeying, they're living um, rebellious lives, how do you respond? When sin creeps up in you, what do you do? What's your go-to? When your job is stressful and overwhelming, what happens? Do you pray? Like, is your first thought, I've got to right now in this moment be desperate for God, get on my knees and ask Him to do something to intervene in my life and in my situation because if He doesn't act for me, I'm in trouble. Or... Would you be the person who would say instead, you know what, if the insurance or the medicine doesn't work or come through, then, you know, then we'll pray. If the check doesn't show up in the mail this week so that we can buy groceries and pay our bills, then we'll pray. Uh, if we can't fix our marriage with the help of a counselor, then we'll pray. If we can't convince our rebellious prodigal son or daughter to come back home, then we'll pray. If I can't manage this sin in my life to death, then I'll pray. If I can't turn things around at my work, through my hard uh, work, my stellar performance, then I'll pray. What's your go-to? You see, I think the reason some of us don't pray faith-filled prayers is because we're those latter people. We don't feel the need to pray in faith, believe in God for greater things, because we've somehow allowed ourselves to believe that we can either face or fix whatever it is we're experiencing in life without God and His help. Here's what God burdened my heart with these last four weeks. Look, we cannot be that church. We cannot be a people who treat prayer and who treat God as last resorts. Instead, God put it on my heart, man, to call us as a church family to know Him deeply and to treat prayer as plan A, to have a great sense of desperation and dependency upon Him. I really believe God wanted me to come back and to tell you that we have got to become more intentional in calling on Him in faith, not praying as some kind of religious duty or obligation, but praying because we're desperate to see God do something in our midst and through our church that only He can do. Look, I'll be honest and tell you, I have no idea what this is going to look like just yet. I've got some ideas, some ideas that I've jotted down. I'm talking to our staff and I'm talking to our elders about it. And so we'll have more to come uh, over the next few weeks and and months. But I believe we have to get this right. And we have to get it right right now. And I'll tell you why, all right? A couple reasons. One, we're getting ready to walk into a season as a church in which I believe we're going to have to pray like never before. More to come on that, so stay tuned. 
Second reason is this. Our mission as a church, and Zach said it earlier, we exist to relentlessly pursue those far from God with the hope and love of Jesus. That mission depends on prayer. Look, I'll be honest and tell you, there are days that I walk into this building and I see that 260,000 number on the back wall. And in case you're new and you're going, well, what in the world is that number? That's the number of people within a 15-mile radius of this building who are either unchurched or dechurched. Over 260,000 people within a 20-minute drive time of where we're sitting right now who don't belong to a church family like this. Many of them may not know Jesus. Our church is here to send people out to get the good news of Jesus to them. That's why we exist. I'll be honest, I'll tell you, I see that number some days and I go, it's impossible. God, can we really do that? I'll tell you, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want us to be that church. I don't want us to be the people that goes, I oh, will pray about it, but I don't really think that we can pull it off. I want us to be the church that looks at that number and we say, you know, in comparison to God, it's nothing. In comparison to what our God is capable of, it's minuscule. So we're going to pray, and we're going to expect, and we're going to believe, and we're going to go, and we're going to name Jesus, and we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we're going to serve people sacrificially because we want to see God move. And we believe he's going to. Look, if that's going to happen, I, I know a couple of things have to happen for us and in us. We have to know God deeply, and we have to treat prayer as plan A. Here's how we're going to close our time together. Um, we're just going to take some time and pray. Uh, the band, they're going to come out. I've asked our response team. Um, we're going to start calling these people our prayer team soon, I think. We're going to ask them to come down front. Um, our pastors and directors, we're going to be down front. I've asked the band to play softer than normal so we can actually hear each other and pray. But I just want to say this to you. If you need prayer, we want to pray for you. If you're the person who's trying to fix your life yourself, you're exhausting yourself. You're exhausting your options. Maybe your marriage is broken. Maybe your strength is failing. Maybe your health is, uh, is, is failing you. Maybe you have a rebellious son or daughter. I got to pray with a, a woman last, last service whose husband's coming home after five months and they want to see their marriage restored. Oh, whatever's going on in your life, would you ask God to do something for you today that only he can do? And would you let us pray with you and for you that God would move in your life in a powerful and mighty way. We're going to be here, and I'm going to ask you to take a courageous step and to let us minister to you in the next few moments. So let me pray, and then we're just going to respond. Okay, God, first, I just want to thank you for Jesus. God, we know that without him, prayer wouldn't even be possible. I thank you that his life, death, and resurrection has opened the way for us to call on you as our Father. God, would you give us confidence in this moment? God, remind us that, that not only are you our Father, but you're the sovereign King of the universe. All things exist under your power and control. You can do anything. And you invite us to come and to ask you to do things in our lives that are going to honor you and make you known. And so, God, I'm just praying today. God, rip doubt out of us. Rip fear out of us. Give us courage. Give us confidence in your presence. God, we need you. We need you to move in ways in us we've never experienced before. God, may it start today. God, we love you, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.